Sun Life Community Church came into being as the result of a compelling vision for a different kind of church, interested in what we call the Sun Life, experiencing and sharing the life of God's Son. Perhaps your heart is burdened these days. We invite you to allow the Word of God through the words of this message to bring rest to your soul and joy to your heart. Heavenly Father, we do ask now as we open your word and look at some of these awesome red letter words, the ones that came right out of your son's mouth, the words that were intended to change lives, to influence thinking, to alter living. Father, we pray that the same impact over all the years might be felt today by us. So bless this word of God, delivered exactly, directly, personally, by Jesus Christ himself. And we ask you this in his name, and for the glory of his church. Amen. I tell you, who doesn't love a rags-to-riches story? Some of you might have one. You know, one of those stories that someone with nothing, who somehow gained everything... Something that started so small that nobody noticed it and became so big that everybody was aware of it. An outcome that no one saw coming. Well, today's red letter scripture directs our attention to just such an outcome. Literally, an outcome like no other. So we continue in this series of things that Jesus said Topics he talked about, truths that he shared that are like no other, and this today is an outcome. An outcome like no other we're going to talk about. Those red letter words are found in Mark chapter 4, verses 30 to 32, and of course there are today's red letter scripture. Here we go. Jesus speaking. The kingdom of heaven, he said, is like a mustard seed which is the smallest seed you plant in the ground. Yet when it is planted, it grows and becomes the largest of all garden plants with such big branches that the birds of the air can perch in its shade. A kind of parable, an earthly situation that's going to communicate to us a heavenly or a spiritual significance. But as we begin, let me just share several what I'd call stipulations. Those of you who, uh, excuse me, those of you who watch lawyer shows on TV, you know that before the case begins, frequently one lawyer will stand up on behalf of his client, another one standing up on behalf of the the state, and will say, "We, we stipulate to certain things means we both agree these things are true, so we're not going to argue about them. We're not going to ask the jury to decide which side they're on. These are things you could argue about. These are things you could puzzle over, but they're not really part of the case we're concerned with, so we stipulate certain things, right? So here, let's start with several stipulations. We stipulate this morning that the mustard seed is very small. 
Some people could try to make a big deal on it, say, I investigated the whole world, and I don't think the mustard seed is the smallest of all seeds. See, it's only that, yeah, we're just going to stipulate. <clears throat> the mustard seed is very small. And we're going to stipulate that some mustard plants, not all of them, but some mustard plants within the family can grow quite large. My research says that at least eight feet tall with a pretty, pretty good structure to it. Though they are not technically trees, they are big enough for birds to treat them like trees. In other words, they could land on them, they could be held up by them. Birds love to do stuff like that, don't they? Every day when Linda and I walk our dogs, we're always checking to see the bird. You always look at the tippity top of the trees. And sometimes in these pine trees, there may be something that's only about that long, and it's smaller than your finger, and there's some bird who found the balance point, and he's way up there looking over the whole world, and, and then you realize that down through the tree, there's other good spots that they can land on. Jesus said birds are like that. We know birds are like that. The people of his day knew that everything he said that we have just stipulated to was true. They understood that. No real puzzlement about that. Yeah, that's how, that's how it is with a garden. That's how it is with planting mustard even. That's how it is, Lord. So what? Well, see, the thing I want us to focus on this morning is what they didn't know. Like if we were them, we'd say, where's he going with this? And why is he saying the kingdom is, uh, this is going to help us understand the kingdom? See, they didn't know that. What Jesus was trying to teach them, they didn't already know. We're going to focus upon what many of his followers still don't know. It's revealed in this teaching of Jesus. So we start off today with just three kingdom truths, three things we can pull out of this parable, this story, this explanation of the kingdom. And the first one is this. The kingdom is what the Holy Spirit brings with him when he enters our life. And by the way, your note sheet's completely filled out. So you don't need to scramble for a pencil unless you're going to write down, you know, of course, your own brilliant observations. You always need to write those down. But I want you just to listen and to watch and to work through. And then this afternoon when you get home, you've got a full full sheet filled out. I will send you the text of this sermon and and you can say, yeah, that is what he said. That's what. But for right now, let's just experience it together. The kingdom is what the Holy Spirit brings with him when he enters our life. Jesus said, the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed which is the smallest of seeds you plant in the ground. And then he says, yet when it is planted, when it is planted, you could have that mustard seed on your shelf in your, in your uh, garage, and it just stays the seed forever. But Jesus says, when it is planted, and so I want us to see there must be a beginning If there's going to be any kingdom activity, if there's going to be anything developed in line with what God wants to do in the world, this seed that the kingdom is like must be planted. There must be a beginning. 
Now, Thursday of this week, and I would have to say when we first woke up for the day, Linda had to point this out to me. Men, how many of you have wives that point out stuff to you? Important stuff. So we just barely woke up in the morning and Linda says, well, today is your spiritual birthday. July 22nd. And of course, I knew that when she reminded me. <clears throat> so let me say, Thursday was actually my 65th spiritual birthday. 65 years ago on July 22nd, 1956, I first heard the gospel message in a compelling way. Now, I certainly at that point, being nine years old, I certainly at that point knew the facts of the faith. I'd been raised in them. We'd been in Sunday school. We talked about those. I knew the facts of the faith. But that night, when a gifted and almost mesmerizing evangelist told the story, my mind was enlightened. My heart was stirred and my will was activated to respond to his invitation to come and to give my life to Christ. And that I did. That I did that night, though only later did I come to know that that was the moment when the Holy Spirit entered my life. It wasn't until the past few years, really, that I came to actually understand that when he, the Holy Spirit, entered into my life, he brought the kingdom with him. Oh, there's so much wrapped up in the words that Peter spoke on the day of Pentecost. The day the Spirit initiated this rags-to-riches story. Here's some of them. Acts chapter 2, verse 38. After Peter had explained that Christ had been crucified and God had raised him from the dead. And, and they say, what shall we do? And he says, well, you need to repent. And you need to believe. Confess your sins. Believe in Christ, the one that God has sent, the one that's been raised from the dead, the one who lives right now in heaven. Believe on him, and then Peter says, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. On day one, that's the way he pointed it out. The evangelist the night that I was saved didn't say to me, now all of you, as you commit your life to Jesus Christ right now, all of you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. What he told me is that all of us will be saved. But that's good news. That's good news. Saved from what? Saved from hell. Well, if I live a normal life, that's a long ways from now. But I'm glad I'm saved from it anyway. I could get hit by a car tomorrow. You're saved from judgment. That's good news. But see, Peter, on the very first day when there were 3,000 people going through this process and then going to confess faith in Jesus Christ, going to repent of their sins, they were going to be baptized in his name, Peter says, and guess what? You, all of you, as you've come to Christ, given your life to Christ, you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And on that very day, they had just seen the Holy Spirit come into the world. 
They had seen the apostles filled with the Holy Spirit. They'd seen the tongues of fire on their head. They had seen the apostles speaking in languages they never learned, but everybody heard the good news of the gospel in their own native language, and they're saying, man, this Holy Spirit's powerful. This is God at work. And then Peter says to them, and you too, you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Day one of their salvation. He told them by those words that God had something awesome planned for them. The Spirit and the kingdom were being offered to them. Two verses later, as Peter concludes his exhortation to them, he says this, save yourself. Save yourselves from this corrupt generation. This generation even filled with Jewish people who were trying to be obedient to the Old Testament law. There's a new, a new truth coming. Jesus had made the final payment for sin. Trust in Jesus as your Savior. He's the Lamb of God. We just sang about him. And Peter's saying anyone who doesn't believe in Christ is corrupt. That is, they're not pure, they're not right, they're not holy in God's eyes. They are still filled with sin and doubt and belief in the wrong thing. And so he says, save yourself. Save yourselves from this corrupt generation. See, he's saying, God, God will enable you. Christ has died for you. But you must respond in faith and commit yourself to him and step out of this place where you are with the behaviors and the standards and the beliefs that are not according to God's truth and step over here to where those things rule the day. Get into the kingdom. Don't just accept a new thought. See, on July 23rd, 1956, I woke up and immediately knew that something had happened to me the night before. My life had been given to Jesus Christ. My life did not belong to me anymore. And though I could not express it this way then, I know now that the kingdom of God brought by the Spirit had come upon me and would forever define me. The tiny seed had been planted. The Spirit of God planted it himself and he committed himself to stay and attend it. Here's the second kingdom truth that I'd share this morning. The kingdom starts small. It has little influence over us. How many of you, if you think back to the day you really committed your life to Jesus Christ, and, and to use our terminology, you'd say you got saved. You knew new life came into you. You gave yourself to Christ. How many of you the very next day were totally new people? How many of you the very next day had people say to you, wow, are you different? How many of you a week later, when you were beginning to wonder, what did I do exactly? How does this work? 
I better get back to church. It's almost time for Sunday again because I'm, I'm kind of, if they ask me, I don't even know how many then would people be saying, boy, have you changed? Are you different? See, it doesn't happen like that. Maybe a month later, a whole month later, some, somebody comes up to you, did they? And say, boy, you're the most godly person I know. You are so sweet, so kind, so loving, so brilliant, so together. After being saved for a month, is that the way they were seeing you? Is that the way you were seeing yourself? Or is it like Jesus said here? The kingdom starts small. It starts small. Has little influence even over us. If you've allowed your fall in human nature to guide you for about 30 years, and you've allowed the Spirit of God to have control of you for about 30 minutes, His effect on you is fairly unnoticeable. Even to you. You know that deep inside you made a decision... You have repented of your sins. You know that you're living a life that isn't pleasing to God. You know that you, in prayer, committed yourself to God, asked for his mercy and his forgiveness, and you believe you received those things. You know that in your thoughts, you are radically different. But in your behavior, it's like you haven't even learned how to do anything differently. You're not even sure that most of the stuff you're doing is a problem. So, very little influence. It might barely be noticeable to others, but then, see, it grows. Jesus said, it becomes the largest of all garden plants. So, there's a process. How many of you are still in the process? How many of you believe with all your heart that there is a process? Okay. Part of my task... I mean, I'm in the process too, right? But I also have the privilege to some degree of overseeing your progress. And there's nothing more joy, joyful than to see some people making progress and thinking that you might have been at least a little bit involved in God's work in their life. You see, that process involves every person who comes into our lives. They're part of the process. It involves every, every circumstance that makes up our lives. All of them become part of the process. And to every person and in every circumstance, there is a uniquely kingdom way of responding. Let me say that again. To every person that we encounter and in every circumstance in which we find ourselves, there is a uniquely kingdom way to respond and to relate. And the more and the more the kingdom grows, kingdom responses become the ones we make. Those are the things people gradually get to see. And if they've known us for a long time, they can say, there's a change in you. Because kingdom living is unlike earthly living, sinful living, fleshly living, self-centered living. And as it grows, as kingdom values begin to take control of us, as the Holy Spirit nurtures us, and all of a sudden we're, we're showing ourselves in different ways. You see, teaching what that way is 
and shaping us into the kind of person who can and will respond in that way is the full-time work of the Holy Spirit, our earthly companion, Numa himself. That's why I said he not only plants the seed, he commits himself to stay and attend it. And attend it. Human flesh and worldly influence and even demonic confusion all come into play and seek to disrupt the process. But listen to this assurance given by Jesus in another parable. We find it in Matthew chapter 13, verse 33, the end of it where Jesus is talking about a a woman who took a great big bunch of dough and then she put some yeast, some leaven into it and did what you typically do to uh, get dough working and yeast working. And and he says this in the 33rd verse, eventually it, that is the leaven, the yeast, it worked all through the dough. How many of you have ever made bread? Or anything that requires yeast? So you get the flour together and however you wet it and get it all mushed up and then you, Linda tells me, you you dissolve yeast into water and then you get it in there and then you have to work it through the dough and, and it takes a while to work it through, right? And then you set it aside, maybe in the refrigerator overnight and tomorrow what do you got? Sometimes you say, I should have put it in a bigger bowl. I didn't know it was going to get that big. It might be the first time you've ever done it. It's like, I can't get the door of the refrigerator open. You know, it's kind of like the blob. It works its way through the whole lump of dough and does its thing. That's the parable of the yeast in the dough. In Matthew's gospel, it comes immediately after the parable of the mustard seed. So Jesus is saying the same thing in two different ways. And he makes the point of saying this woman took a large amount of flour. She wasn't just going to make a couple of pancakes or maybe one small loaf of bread. She was initiating a significant baking product and project. Something. I'd say something comparable to the Holy Spirit's work in our life. You know, he doesn't come into our lives just to maybe bring out of us one good moment. Well, I came into Mark's life, he was only nine years old, and I'm glad I have, the, I have eternity, and these days are going by fast, the years are going by fast, because the only reason I'm in Mark's life is because about 65 years from now, He's going to preach a message. And that message is going to affect a key person that I'm involved with. And so from, and that's the only purpose. I mean, that's his purpose on earth, to preach that message 65 years later on that Sunday to that crowd. And the Holy Spirit says, so, uh, you know, we'll just wait. It's going to seem like a long time to him. I'm glad I don't have to tell him, you know, See, the Holy Spirit isn't in our lives to just create a small batch of cookies. Maybe one small loaf of bread. He's involved in a major project that involves all of our lives every day, everyone we ever will meet, and every circumstance we will ever step into is all part of of the kingdom agenda. 
And he's committed to that. And since he's God, he can be 100% committed to each one of us at the same time. That's why Jesus had to leave the earth. Jesus was in a physical body, one place, one time at a time. The Spirit of God can be with all of us. And when he's with us, he's with us 100%. He's never waiting for the key moment to come. This moment is a key moment. That's what he's doing. He works his way through the whole lump of dough. You see, the kingdom needs to be developed in us. It needs to be kneaded into us. It needs to ferment and then expand to come to its final most useful state. Now the hands upon our lives are the strong, experienced hands of the Holy Spirit, as we said. And so the Apostle Paul, who certainly knew well the touch of the Holy Spirit upon his life, he wrote to the Galatians using these insightful phrases referring to that divine dough worker. We've seen them before. They're in in Galatians chapter 5. You can read the whole chapter this afternoon. But these phrases are there referring to the Holy Spirit. He says, live by. Live by the Spirit. That's 24-7. He says, you are people who are led by. That means we're not figuring out ourselves. He's leading. We're following. Walking with. And Paul says, keep in step with him. Don't run ahead of him and don't drag behind him. Keep in step with him. He is God with you. He is God directing you. He is God perfectly planning out every moment for you. Just keep in step with him. Put your hand in his. Be sure that that he is the one that is nurturing what he has planted within you. And so we see here the tiny seed once properly planted and carefully tended, grows into what it was intended to be. The largest plant in the garden. It's the inevitable result of the Spirit's touch. Now let me just say to you, I've said it before, but I believe the Holy Spirit has helped us come across something that can help us keep in step with him. So if you have a, if you have a way of keeping in step with him that works for you, well, do that for heaven's sakes. But if you don't, we do have a set of at least four months, morning and evening conversations that are all biblically based that anticipate that these are words that the Spirit is saying to us, counsel he's giving us based upon the scripture that's been given through him. And to every single day. You can't keep in step with him if you lose track of him. And so whatever you do, whatever you use, whatever tool might be helpful to you, for Linda and me, these things are, are helpful. But every day you need to keep in touch with him so that he can lead you, guide you, and tend this marvelous work of God that that he's doing within you. Well, third thing. Third and final kingdom truth this morning. It's the most important one. It's the point that Jesus was making. The reason he told the parable in the first place. 
And this one I want to elaborate on just a bit. Here it is, Kingdom Truth 3. As it, that is the kingdom and the plant, grows. As the mustard seed grows, it develops into the largest plant in the garden, Jesus said, and it develops big branches. Big branches that can hold up and provide shelter through all the challenges of life. Now, part of our stipulation here is there are some people who every time they, they read birds in the New Testament, they say, ah, that's a sign of the devil. If there's a bird there, we're talking about evil and devil activity. Just read the parable the way the people sitting there heard it. They didn't pull out their Bible concordance and they didn't pull out some book written by a professor at some Bible college who says, as you go through the whole Bible, every time you see a bird anywhere, watch out. Nothing good's being talked about. That's crazy. Jesus was having a conversation, telling a story, and he's telling them something about the kingdom. That the kingdom starts like a little thing in your life and then it grows until it's so powerful, so strong, so protective that, that he says, if you picture it, and of course they could picture it. They see it every day. A bird can come and sit on this branch and he said, perch in its shade. Shades of relief from the heat. That, that plant was doing something good for the bird. And the bird was smart enough to take advantage of it. Even the birds of the air. Didn't Jesus once say, God can feed the birds of the air? He wasn't feeding Satan's helpers, was he? Birds are birds. Depends on the context, how they might be used. If you're talking about a bird that's picking up the seed that fell on the ground, well, yeah, the devil does that. But here, these birds are being blessed by the kingdom. They're perching in its shade. The birds of the air can perch in its shade. It becomes a haven and a comfort. Now, that's what I want for you, for me. I want us to experience the kingdom of God in such a way that it's a haven and a comfort to us. It provides strength. It provides us security. It provides us a place where we can get out of the blazing sun of, of this fallen world and just for a while perch in the shade. I want you to put that image in your mind right now. If you get nothing else out of this message, go home with this picture. Just say, boy, to this week I'm going to just perch in the shade. I'm going to let God and his goodness, the kingdom of God, I'm going to let it just provide for me such protection and security this week that I'm just going to perch in the shade and relax and delight. Because God wants us to do that regularly. That's part of be still and know I'm God. You see, if that, that's what I hope we can all get out of this. Now, let me just share, because I've got a few minutes left, let me just share what a couple of those big kingdom branches might be. When you're perching in the shade, what might you be receiving comfort and security and protection by? 
Could we put a name on some of those branches? And that's what I thought we'd do this morning. This might be a little bit fun. It might be instructive. Excuse me if any of my phrasing sounds like, oh, that's Pastor Mark making up words again. But here we go. First thing I want to talk, the big kingdom branches that can hold us up, can shelter us through all the ups and downs of life. Here's the first one I'd share. The kingdom branch called family. Called family. The kingdom supports and provides shelter. Now listen to this. For harmless family. Kingdom families are harmless families. There are so many families today that are anything but harmless. There are so many families where father and mother and sister and brother do great harm to one another. Through selfishness and pride and drugs and divorce and infidelity and blatant stupidity, they destroy themselves and they bring destruction upon others as well. How many kids come out of families like that and say, I'm never getting married. I'm never having kids. I'm going to live for myself and by myself. And here's the truth. Probably everybody in his family was doing that. Living for themselves. Living pretty much by themselves. And bringing great harm to each other. You see, the kingdom of God produces families that are truly harmless. Hear what's written long years ago describing the way the wife of such a family acts toward her husband. Way, way back in Proverbs chapter 31, verse 12, it says this, speaking of the wife of the family, the mom, talking about her husband, she will do him good, not evil, all the days of her life. Do you think the writer was uh, just kind of doing a hypothetical there? Or do you think he had ever seen some women who did their husbands evil? Do you think any women like that existed way back then? Or have we only developed that lately? See, men and women have been in a tussle with each other from the beginning of time, from the time Adam says, that woman you gave me. But in a kingdom family... Here you have a woman, a wife. She will do him good, not evil, all the days of her life. You see, in the kingdom of God, families are committed to one another. And they seek to be a blessing and an encouragement to one another. They don't run roughshod over one another. Here's what the Apostle Paul told all believers, but especially those who live inside the same four walls. Ephesians 5.21, he says, submit yourselves to one another. Submit yourself to one another. In other words, don't always insist on having your own way. Recognize and take advantage of any opportunity that comes to allow the other members of your family to thrive and delight in their relationship with you. Ephesians chapter 5, the next few verses, verse 22 all the way through chapter 6, verse 4, Paul talks and addresses husbands and wives and parents and children. 
covers all the bases. This afternoon you could read it all. Take some time. Read the part that especially relates to you in your family. Let me just say this. Let me describe it this way. In the family where the kingdom has worked its way through the whole lump of dough, you find a wife who says, I'm sure glad I have a husband like you. You find a husband who says, God certainly blessed me when he gave you to me. You find children who say, we wouldn't trade our parents for anyone. And you find parents who say, our kids are such a blessing to us, we thank God for them every day. Now, do not raise hands. Isn't that a family? Isn't that what, if Jesus Christ were actually you in your family, if Jesus Christ somehow were every single one of you in the family, the children are little Jesuses, the husband's a Jesus, the wife's a Jesus, and they live together for 24 hours, do you think they would all be godly at the end? If they were all Jesus, do you think maybe the husband would say, I'm sure glad, or the wife would say, I'm sure glad I have a husband like you? Do you think the husband would say, God certainly blessed me when he gave you to me? Do you think the children would say, we wouldn't trade our parents for anybody? And do you think the parents would say, our kids are such a blessing to us. We thank God every day for them. See, that's, that's the kingdom value. And the thing is, that isn't just in heaven. Because in heaven, you know, we don't have to worry about that. In heaven, nobody's married in heaven. There aren't families. and We're all related to God in heaven. We're children of God. We're on the same level. So you can say, well, we're finally going to get this thing, family thing together in heaven. Nah, you only get one shot at it. Wherever we are in the process, the kingdom can invade your little lump of dough called family. No matter where you are in the process. And it can begin by changing you and changing each one until the whole family has been changed into a place that you could say the smile of God is upon this place. That's a branch. I tell you, you could... That's a place you can just, just perch in the shade and say, wow, chaos out there. But my family's a place where, where I can just relax for a bit, where I know the love of each member, where I know I care deeply about each one, where we are together in this, and God's spirit is in all of us together. That's a big, sturdy branch. A family that's been invaded by the kingdom. Here's another one. I just call it the kingdom branch called morality. The kingdom supports and provides shelter for what I'm calling this morning shameless morality. How many people are living today shamelessly who have nothing that they are terribly ashamed of? Probably not many. 
The morality of this present age has so deviated from biblical morality that even many of those who profess faith in Christ are living and doing things that fill their hearts with shame and regret, especially if they ever read the Bible. In the kingdom of God, there is an embracing and a practicing of biblical morality living according to the directives of God's word. In the kingdom of God, there is clear teaching and a viable testimony of the value of each of those directives. Long years ago, the writer of Psalm 119 questioned, Psalm 119 verse 9, he said, how can a young man cleanse his way? I tell you, today there's just as many old men just as many old women, middle-aged women, who said, how did I get mucked up in all of this? How can I get out of this? How can I get back to where I'm not feeling guilty about the way I'm living and what I'm doing and how I'm talking and how I relate to people? And when I know the Bible is so contrary to almost everything I'm doing, how can I get out of this? Might be a 95-year-old person who says, I would just like to end my life with a clean slate. I've got nothing but regrets. How can, I, how can I not die regretting? How can I die with something I'm rejoicing in? The writer said long, long years ago, how can you get your life together? How can we get rid of the guilt and the shame? David basically said in our language today, get with the program. More biblically, Psalm 119 says, by taking heed according to God's word. There is nobody who ever takes a verse of scripture that talks about a way to live and lives that way who winds up then saying, I'm so ashamed of myself. God told me to do that. I did it and I'm so ashamed of myself. I feel so guilty. Never happened. Never happened. It's when we violate what God says and we know what God's word says that we then say, well, I don't know why I got into that, but I'll tell you right now, I feel so bad. I'm so ashamed of myself. I hope nobody saw me. I hope not too many people are talking about it. See, how do you get out of that? By taking heed according to thy word. The Apostle Paul jumped into the conversation a few centuries later. In 1 Corinthians 7, 1, he says to the people, and these are relatively new believers who had quite a track record of sinful living, he said, let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates soul and body, perfecting holiness out of reverence for Christ. If we truly love Christ, if we truly want to identify ourselves with him, let, let's, let's get moving in the direction of genuine holy lives, obedient lives, righteous lives. You see, once the kingdom has worked its way through our lives, there's a freedom morality. We know that we are abiding by biblical standards. We know that our hearts are free from guilt and shame. And so we can perch. We can perch in the shade in the shade of a shameless morality and enjoy the view. 
and know that we're conducting our lives outwardly, behaviorally, according to God's standards. And we're not every day doing things that we will later on be ashamed of. Our morality keeps us free from shame. And that's a kingdom morality, an awesome reality. Just one more now. Well, actually, two more. The kingdom branch called integrity. The kingdom supports and provides shelter for what I'm calling blameless honesty. And by that I mean in the kingdom, people are believable. They do not live deceptively. No one can point the finger of blame at them saying, you lied to me. You lied to me. No blame comes their way. They may make mistakes. They may mess up. But blame is when somebody says, you promised something you didn't do. It's your fault. You lied to me. Well, living a completely honest life is a way to live and eliminate much of the blame that people will put upon us when they catch us in something. Jesus said straight out, Matthew 5, 37, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Be so blatantly honest that your yes used to say a man's word is his bond. But Jesus is saying that. Be so honest that when you tell somebody I will, they know you will. When they say, when you say I can't, it doesn't mean if they up the amount, all of a sudden you can. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. The writer of Proverbs reported truthfully, Proverbs six seventeen. God hates a lying tongue. It's almost like God himself would say, there's nothing I can do with that. There's nothing I can do with a lying tongue. Never in the kingdom of God does God ever say, what I need in this situation is a good, believable liar. Now, if I had one of those people, uh, this is finally what I've given them grief all these years, but now here's where I could use a good, believable liar. And the Holy Spirit might say, wow, how are you going to pick? We got thousands. (laughs) God hates a lying tongue. And then Jesus absolutely wrapped up his point when he said, John 8, 44, the devil is the father of lies. Anytime a human being tells a lie, they're linking themselves to the evil one himself because he's the father of the very lie they're about to tell. He told the first one, the most horrible one in the garden, he destroyed two lives. And every time we lie, we are, we are showing kind of a family allegiance to him. Now, if we really believe that, if we really could see that, wouldn't you want to be very careful never to tell a lie? Not even to mislead people without actually lying, but we, we get done talking to them and they go away believing something entirely different from what is true. But we say, well, I didn't really lie. If they're going to believe that, let them believe it. You know, but I didn't know anything close to that. The Holy Spirit just 
pulls back from it. It grieves him. It's so contrary to the nature of the kingdom. But what a delight it is to perch on the kingdom branch called integrity and rest in the shade that's provided by blameless honesty. And just know that's, that's part of the way things are in the kingdom. Now the last one. The kingdom branch called society. The kingdom supports and provides shelter for hateless society. Paul made sure that the Galatians believers knew that. He wrote in Galatians 5, 13, 14, Love your neighbor as yourself. Just want to say enough said. In a society where all kinds of points are scored by stirring up hatred among men, the kingdom of God stands apart. Love rules the day. And those in whose hearts the kingdom has come, they perch in the shade of a genuine, God-honoring, hateless society, and they rejoice. They don't get caught up in the things that would lead them to hate another human being, to despise another human being. They look beyond what fallen human beings are telling them. They look beyond all the things that that distress the heart of God. And they see every single person they look at, no matter what condition they're in, no matter what the circumstance they might be uh, characterized by even, say, there is someone made in the image of God. It's another human being like me. I value them. I want God's best for them. That's what love is. I want God's best for them. And there's no hatred in my heart for them. You see, that's that's when the kingdom has worked its way through the whole lump of dough. We are so unlike the world around us that what's coming out of the kitchen, anybody who walks by says, wow, does that smell good? What are you baking in there? And then when they get to taste it, it's even better. The beauty is you and I can smell it and taste it ourselves when the Spirit of God is creating it within us. The kingdom of God. It came to you the moment the Holy Spirit entered your life when you confess Christ as your Savior. And that kingdom, it's in you. I doubt that any one of us, it's still at seed level. Maybe it's pretty close. Maybe there's just a few little green things coming out of it. It hasn't even burst through the ground yet, but it's coming up. Maybe a few roots are going down, but the Holy Spirit is guarding it. And as you give yourself to the Holy Spirit, it's amazing how fast it can grow. How fast it can grow and and permeate your entire life until you are obvious to everyone and especially to God, a child of the kingdom. And our church family is viewed as being a kingdom place, a family of faith in the kingdom where people can say, you know, I've, uh, I've never met a group like you. We talk about 
why we want to be here on a Sunday morning. We talk about the connections we have with people. We talk about prayers that have been offered on our behalf and sometimes needs that have been met on our behalf and others who are blown away by that and don't understand that. It's like, well, we're part of something together. Jesus called it the kingdom. You see, when we pray the Lord's Prayer, you don't have to look a thousand years into the future and say, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We can begin to say, It's happening. It's happening. His kingdom is coming right in me. His kingdom is coming right in this wonderful little body of believers I'm part of. His kingdom is coming on the earth. It's changing the way I live and the way I think and the way I feel and, and the comfort I receive because every now and then I just perch in its branches and I'm safe and I'm good and I'm content and I know my life is being brought to fruition by the very Spirit of God. How good is that? Final thought just says this. Nothing... Nothing will ever be as successful as the kingdom of God. It's an outcome like no other. Everything else passes away. Everything else has its day in the sun. But the kingdom of God is just gaining steam. It's growing. It's growing. I can see it in you. I can see it in us. And hopefully it's, it's all around the world. The kingdom of God, ministered to by the Spirit of God, is just growing into the largest of things and the best of things that provide shelter and goodness for everyone who enters into it. We hope this message has inspired you to live the sun life together with us. If you are near Apple Valley, California this weekend, we invite you to join us in person Sunday morning or through our live broadcast. All the details are on our website at sunlifecommunitychurch.com.